my name's Buffalo Bill and you're listening to The Bike Show on Resonance FM. And now, on Thursday, we said we'd have news for cyclists. And if you're a keen cyclist, keep your eyes open. Have a look at these bikes that Val and Peter are riding in now. They really are very modern bikes indeed. I think they're just about the most modern design bikes that I've seen for ages. Well, they remind me of those American dragster racing bikes because the front wheel is much smaller than the back wheel and the rider sits right at the back end here with these high roll bars behind him and it looks extremely sporty. Oh, everything I see on these bikes seems to be the latest in design. I've ridden quite a few bikes on Blue Peter, old and new, but I should think this is one of the most modern-looking bikes I've seen. Welcome to The Bike Show here on Resonance FM. My name's Jack Thurston, and on the show this week, yes, you've guessed it, it's the second part of our history of the Rally Bicycle Company with historian Tony Hadland. Last week, we charted the growth of rally from a backstreet bicycle workshop in Nottingham in the late 1880s to become the biggest bicycle manufacturer in the world. And we pick up the story this week at perhaps the high watermark in the fortunes of the Nottingham-based company in the consumer boom that followed on from the end of the Second World War. You always get a boom after the war, after a war, because you've had so many years of, of no production. People haven't been able to buy bicycles, so they've been making do and mending. They want to, they need to, in many cases, replace. In other cases, they want to because life is a little bit uh, um, easier. They're earning more money. Uh, things feel more stable. And so inevitably, you get a boom after the war. In the case of the Second World War here, we had metal rationing for a long time, and as much production as possible was diverted overseas. To, uh, to pay for the import of corn and so on from Canada. And there were you know, people in senior management, uh, of senior government, were actually equating the number of rally bicycles sold to the number of tonnes of corn that came in from Canada. Of course, once that, uh, that uh, demand is satisfied, then you find that, that things fall back. So there's a fallback in demand, and that was compounded in the 1950s because people were then turning towards motor cars. And at long last, um, a significant number of, of British people were buying motor cars and abandoning the bicycle. How were they able to do that? Because a car you know, is much more expensive than a bicycle. Yes. In relative terms, uh, the price of cars was coming down, but also there was the, uh, um, the popularity of higher purchase. Higher purchase had been around for ages. In the early days of rally, the rally started doing it. But there were a lot of social taboos about it. I mean, a lot of families, um, regardless of their position in society, uh, would feel quite uh, shamed if they went down paying on the never-never, as it was known. And that sort of um, um, taboo tended to wear off in, in the 1950s and 1960s. It became more respectable. It was also boosted to some extent in the UK, um, again, slightly different to many other countries, with the company car situation, because a lot of firms gave their employees uh, a car if they needed them uh, as part of their work. And uh, so that boosted the number of cars that were coming out. And as more cars took to the roads, the roads presumably became less pleasant places to ride a bicycle. So it became a sort of reinforcing dynamic. Absolutely. Uh, well, I can remember when I went off on my bicycle in 1966 uh, on a tour of the continent. My first escape from England, from suburban Reading, in fact, uh, was the day after England beat Germany in the famous World Cup because one of my mates actually went to that match. So that predicated that we left at 7 o'clock the following Sunday morning. 
And to go to Dover then, uh, we did what was obvious at that time. You just went up the A4 through the centre of London and down the A2, and you didn't bat an eyelid. Um, now there's literally 10 times as much traffic. I wouldn't dream of doing that journey today by that route. But that's the sort of difference that has happened in that time. So while in the 60s sales were falling for the UK market, they were still on the up and doing very well in export markets. In some export markets, certainly, yes. Uh, Rally did very, very well in uh, places like Africa and Asia, parts of Asia. Uh, they set up their own factories in many cases um, and selling lots of black bikes to Nigeria, for example, gave them a sort of ballast which may have taken their eye off the ball a little bit. It made them feel a little bit more secure than they might otherwise be. Also, they'd been merging over many years, gradually absorbing their major competitors. And the big merger came in, in 1960 when um, Tube Investments, British um, cycle company, um, merged with Rally to become one huge company under the control of Rally. And uh, that became uh, the, the absolutely dominant force. And so at this peak of Rally's production, is there a year when you can say that this is the time when this is the high watermark of the Rally Cycle Company? Around about this time, wouldn't it? Been late late fifties, early sixties. Yes, I, it, it's difficult. It depends on how you measure it, really. But in, it, I would say probably the mid fifties would be the peak when they still saw the post-war boom as continuing and were spending money uh, like crazy on new factories, which were not really fully implemented and you had this very rapid decline from about 55 through to about 60 as these various uh, factors worked against them the fall off of demand uh, the competition from the car and uh, and also there were other things that i think have probably been neglected but things about personal hygiene and so on that because um, a lot of people didn't you know it, it seems strange now but an awful lot of houses didn't have baths in those days so easy access to bathing and showering wasn't as uh, prevalent as today. But you had the coming of commercial television in 1955, and you had Radio Luxembourg, and a lot of the, the push from these things was about um, it was about deodorants, it was about these campaigns about don't you know, her best friend wouldn't tell her, B.O., body odour, you know, all this stuff about sweat and sm being smelly, basically. You're getting these different forces coming. And of course, if you had a car, you didn't get sweaty, you see. If you were having to cycle to work and you were, and you were wearing a suit, of course, people used to wear normal work clothes. All these things sort of contributed to the decline, I think. We've got a lovely uh, portrayal of Rally as it was at that time in Alan Silito's book, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. Mm. And you've got a, a couple of extracts from that in, in the book. Do you want to just uh, read, read, sure. read, read the first of those? OK. Let's just give a little um, context to this. Um, this is a book that then became a film from a kind of new wave of British uh, literature, um, portraying social conditions as they were. And it's a kind of working class literary culture challenging the sort of very upper middle class Rethian tradition of the BBC. Absolutely. And it was seen as being very shocking at the time. Uh, Alan Silito came from a family who had worked for Rally. I mean, Silito himself during the war as a young boy had worked for a short time in um, in Rally. Um, he, uh, he left uh, having uh, told a union official uh, in no uncertain terms, which we can't possibly um, uh, relate on this radio station, <laughs> uh, what to do uh, with himself. And I quite like it. It was, it was the go and get dive bombed. Uh, yes. But that, was the, that was the more that, broadcast 
light part. version, yes, yes, uh, with, with elements of sex and travel involved in it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Siletto's family continued to work with Raleigh throughout this, this whole period. So one of his brothers was a tester for Sturmey Archer Gears, for example. His father worked there as well. So their whole culture was in the shadow of this great family. Uh, this, and it was treated as a family, but family factory. So it was, it was a mixture of sort of family and, and tension and oppressor at the same time. Um, so this little bit here is um, is Silito's description of uh, of the factory. Uh, this is this is the the, the character in the story. Um, we can't really say it's autobiographical, but there are elements of it. The the anti-hero Arthur Seaton and his father setting off on foot for work. Once out of doors, they were more aware of the factory rumbling a hundred yards away over the high wall. Generators whined all night. And during the day, giant milling machines working away on cranks and pedals in the ternary gave to the terrace a sensation of living within breathing distance of some monstrous being that suffered from a disease of the stomach. Disinfectant suds, grease and newly cut steel permeated the air over the suburb of four-roomed houses built around the factory, streets and terraces, hanging onto its belly and flanks like calves sucking the udders of some great mother. So there you've got the position of rally. And this was rally. This was, there's no mistaking that it was rally that he was talking about. Uh, it's sort of dominant feature as a sort of great sort of mother god uh, dominating the area. Fantastic. But then we see basically the slow decline of manufacturing in Britain and manufacturing in Britain by Raleigh. Yes, indeed. You have a sort of stark contrast between this sort of paternalistic welfareism of the 1930s at its best uh, as it gradually changes into something much more confrontational after the war. Uh, you've got changed, changed attitudes of the management, I think, uh, with a lot of the senior managers having been officers in the war anyway. So they tend to sort of take less of a hard line, I think, perhaps with some of the workers. They're looking at things in perspective having gone through the sort of experiences they've gone through, um, confrontation on the work floor is, um, is, is relatively low-key. So they're, they're, they're not as aggressive as managers as, as they might have been before. And also you've got the, the, the amount of employment opportunities. There were, there were always other jobs to go to, so people didn't have to kowtow in the same way. And you get this coming out in, uh, in, in the sort of way in which people worked the system as much as possible. So piecework came and went at rally, but it was certainly dominant at this period. And here you have the anti-hero again setting out how to, uh, how to work his way around the piecework system. The rate checker sometimes came and watched you work, so that if he saw you knock up a hundred in less than an hour, Robbo, the foreman, would come and tell you one fine morning that your rate had been dropped by sixpence or a bob. So when you felt the shadow of the rate checker breathing down your neck, you knew what to do if you had any brains at all. Make every move more complicated, though not slow because that was cutting your own throat, and do everything deliberately, yet with a crafty show of speed. <laughs> so it's all about working the system. <laughs> so we've got workers at Rally and the management not really gelling together and it's essentially losing competitiveness. And who are they losing competitiveness to at this point? Well, I suppose at that time there weren't any other uh, sources of competition with bicycles. They were they were losing it to other other forms of transport as much as anything. So people were going from uh, bicycles to motorbikes, scooters, and particularly to cars. Later, of course, you had uh, competition from overseas. But at this stage, the idea of anyone buying a bicycle made abroad was uh, completely alien. 
um, and, and even until maybe the 1980s, even the early 1990s, the idea of anyone buying an American bicycle was, would have been laughable. You did start to get more imports um, in the, I suppose, the 70s, the early 70s through EFTA and so on. Before we went into the EU as such, you had PUC bicycles coming in from Austria. And then when we went into the EU, you started seeing more French bicycles, for example, Peugeot would come in. Um, and, and then thereafter, the big threat started to come from Eastern Europe. You had lots and lots of cheap bicycles coming through from Eastern Europe and then from the Far East. So meanwhile, Rally are attempting to reach new cyclists uh, with new types of products. And it's not so much about transport and racing as it was in the 50s with the roadster and the sports bicycle, there's all kinds of different bicycles coming through in the 1960s, principally the small wheel revolution. Yes, the small wheel thing was, it was very important in Britain. Uh, you don't get a parallel in, uh, in America where things were going very differently. But uh, it was the, uh, the advent of the molten in particular, not so much in terms of the volume of, of molten sold, but the, the existence of the molten was a catalyst which got people interested in bicycles again. It broke the old image of the, the chap on the roadster with his flat cap cycling to work because he couldn't afford uh, a car. That sort of uh, working-class image that, had, that bicycling had been largely lumbered with. And instead, you had these uh, small-wheeled bicycles which were being marketed particularly with very clever product placement. Um, Alex Moulton and David Duffield, who worked for him as a marketing man, very clever at uh, getting personalities, uh, TV personalities, actresses, pop stars and so on, to pop up in all kinds of different contexts with, with a Moulton. And that sort of associated bicycling with, uh, with people who you were interested in, the heroes of sport, music, drama and so on. That tended to turn things round, and this led to a market in, in, uh, in sort of shopper bikes and this sort of thing. And Rally did particularly well, having rather messed it up in the first place. They had been offered the Moulton to make and uh, were involved with Moulton for a couple of years and then chickened out at the last moment, thinking that uh, it wouldn't sell because it looks so radically different. Their marketing people said, no, no one's going to buy a sort of glorified fairy cycle, was the, to uh, the, the uh, expression used, a fairy cycle for those not old enough to remember was a, uh, a a child's bike basically it was a sort of brand of uh, of, uh, of child's bike with small wheels from uh, many many years ago and uh, it turned out to be completely the opposite the Moulton took off very well indeed Moulton himself made it at first and then Rally came in with uh, competitor products and bought out uh, Moulton and right through into the 1970s in the mid-1970s for example small wheel bicycles were Rally's biggest line so this culminated really in the Rally 20 yeah which is um Quite a good bike. Yeah, hugely successful, but much derided uh, in this country, but much more appreciated in others. And people like the late Sheldon Brown, John S. Allen, absolutely top technical writers in America, uh, are all into or were into uh, sort of hot versions of those because of the, the basically very sound frame. And they would put lightweight components on it and so on. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a, of its type. The, the Rally 20 was an extremely successful and, uh, and good machine. So Rally were trying to come up with different types of bicycle, um, trying to create and respond to different booms in cycling and bicycles of all different shapes and sizes. Mm. We, we could quickly run through a few of these, perhaps. And um, we had the Chopper. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, which has uh, come from America, basically. And then it was an, an attempt by Rally to make a kind of easy rider type of bicycle that had been popular in America, that, but basically 
reached the American market a little bit too late. Yes, yes, indeed. There'd been a boom about the same time that we had the small whale boom here. The Americans had the high-rise boom, and Schwinn were particularly good with that. That that actually emulated something that had come from the streets uh, in California. Kids had started modifying bikes themselves. They, they found some old um, polo bicycle saddles, and they started putting these onto 20-inch wheel Schwinn bikes and then putting ape-hanger handlebars on, and they, they basically created that kind of look. And Schwinn thought, hey, let's, uh, let's capitalise on this. So they started making them. And um, Rally did a straight copy of, of, of Schwinn's first bike and did actually try to sell it in the UK. It appeared in the catalogue for one year and it just died. It, there was no interest at all. So meanwhile, Rally, with a view to exports, were working uh, over quite a few years to create a, a killer product for the American market, not terribly successfully. And then finally they got to the, the chopper, and that was primarily for America. But by that time, the craze had been going for a decade, and it was tailing off. And they started getting all kinds of law cases as well, because people were doing wheelies with these things and ending up injuring themselves. So in America, the chopper was pretty much a flop, but in the UK, it was an absolute success. And one of the most important things about it was that it was, in many ways, the first bicycle that was designed as a toy from the, uh, from the outset, Toy bicycles before that were just scaled-down versions of adult bicycles. And this was something which was designed as a concept. So it took, it took basically Schwinn's uh, last version of a high-rise bicycle, which had a smaller front wheel and so on, and then they jazzed it up a bit to give it this kind of dragster look. And uh, it was very, very successful for them. And we've got other types of bicycles, the BMX, early mountain bikes, hybrid bicycles, all of which rally were involved with from the very beginning, right? Yes, uh, with varying degrees of, uh, of speed of adoption. So they were quite late with both um, BMX and with, um, with proper mountain bikes, but they were very early with the hybrid. Um, very often it's said that Bianchi were the first people to do a, a hybrid, but uh, uh, as far as we can make out, Rally were about a year or so ahead of the game there. Very early compared to most competitors. And there's a character at the heart of all this um, innovation and marketing quite an interesting character. Yes, uh, Yvonne Ricks, uh, who was uh, Yvonne Fisk in those days, uh, she started off uh, as a, a secretary at Rally and worked with uh, Alan Oakley, who was a senior designer there, and uh, gradually worked her way up to a position of being uh, the director in charge of, uh, of, of product choice and product selection and so on. And she had a, a great influence. This doesn't mean that she actually invented all these things, but she... Uh, gave them the green light she, or she the gave, red light. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of them were developed by various people in Rally or from people outside. Uh, she was very instrumental in finally persuading Rally to go down the route of mountain bikes because mountain bikes in the UK for years, people just didn't get it. Manufacturers didn't get it. Um, they thought, saw these things and thought, well, look, there aren't any mountains here. You know, Why would you want a mountain bike? And uh, Yvonne uh, Rix's response was, well, no, there, there aren't many muddy fields in Chelsea, but people still drive Land Rovers, Range Rovers and, and things of that sort. And she was very astute at that kind of thing, and particularly at pitching bicycles towards women as well. She saw the market there, and instead of just confining women in a sort of mental box, just, oh, yes, you can have a loop frame roadster with a basket on the front of it and a three-speed gear, uh, Yvonne saw other uses. So she started bringing in derailleur gears, different colour schemes, which were particularly pitched for women, and, and changing the specification so that ergonomically they were better suited. I think it's quite interesting because we could say that Yvonne Ricks is the godmother of 
the cycle chic movement, which is burgeoning today, which is about looking elegant and beautiful on a bicycle, particularly aimed at women, not exclusively aimed at women. There's plenty of uh, elegant men riding bicycles being celebrated in the cycle chic movement. But she was coming up with marketing strategies which were based around that in the yeah, 1970s. Absolutely, yes. yes. She's uh, quite a fascinating and much neglected person in all this. <laughs> but was a consequence of going down all these different routes and coming up with these toy bicycles and marketing to women in this way, was the consequence of that perhaps that Rally forgot what it was all about and, and its brand identity of high quality, reliability, became a little bit diffused. I think so. It became a very confusing image because uh, typically when you buy a product, you think in terms of a, a particular thing. You know, the, the brand comes up, the logo comes up, and I uh, take uh, Coca-Cola, for example, as a, a typical case. You, you, you see that, and, and in your mind's eye, you can see the bottle. You've got a very clear idea of what it is. You may know, yeah, there are some sub-brands, you know, that have slightly different fizzy drinks and so on, but they are part of that family, and what dominates it is, is, is very strongly defined. With Rally, it became very murky because, on the one hand, they were running a Tour de France team, which was the only British uh, cycle manufacturer to win a team prize in the Tour de France. So they were capable of producing very, very high-quality racing bikes. So that's good. But they were also producing plastic trundle toys for toddlers. They were producing toy prams. Um, they were producing a rally chopper, which a serious racing cyclist would uh, deride, uh, and all sorts of things in between. It was very fuzzy as to what you were buying into. And if was, you... was nobody raising the alarm about this at the time? I don't think anybody really grasped it properly. Uh, I think pr probably Yvonne Ricks had a, an idea of it, but there just didn't seem to be the, uh, the, the, the power to pull that together. I think you had different competing elements within Rally, and it had become part of such a gigantic organisation as, as part of um, Tube Investments, who had interests in all kinds of different things, you know, from car seat manufacturing, tube manufacture, boilers, uh, engineering, beams and uh, lattice girders, you name it, uh, anything that, that vaguely had to do with uh, with metal tubing, um, TI were in it. And they were, they were part of it, and increasingly people were looking at it from the sort of bean counter end of things. So they, uh, I think to a lot of bean counters, the more different lines you had, the better. But they didn't quite really, I think, understand the, the, the product differentiation. So what do you think Frank Bowden would have thought if he'd have come back and seen rally in the 1970s and, and early 80s? It's a tricky one, that, but I, I suspect that he would probably have got rid of uh, a, a lot of things and concentrated much more on the core cycling values. Uh, a lot of the sort of toy end of things, I think he would have probably been a little bit horrified about. Uh, as a keen cyclist himself, and this is one of the, the, the key things about Bowden, that he was a convinced cyclist all his life. He, he felt he owed his life uh, to cycling. Um, so serious cycling was was important. You know, he would argue the, uh, the merits of different types of tyres and different types of wheels, and this sort of thing, even in his old age. And uh, uh, there was very little in the way of uh, toys or that sort of differentiation in, in his time. You had different types of bikes, and you would go from a, a carrier bicycle, a tradesman's bicycle, through to a top-end racer. But you didn't have uh, uh, all these other sort of fripperies and uh, fringe products. So as well as perhaps losing a little bit of a sense of what it's about, these labour problems with the difficulty of finding and uh, keeping staff and, and keeping them productive... There was also a general decline in the allied industries that were supplying Rally with 
the components and the raw materials that it needed. And, and it was ultimately producing bikes that were of lower quality and, and failing to meet deadlines. And there was a just a general malaise and decline, wasn't there, mm. in this period? Yes, yeah, so it went across the whole of um, British industry. Of course, you had uh, parallels with the motor industry. Uh, and across Europe, um, the, uh, the idea of having everything integrated in-house, which Rally had been able to do for a, a, a lot of their um, history, particularly with roadsters, you made almost everything in-house, apart from tyres and one or two other components, um, that started to go. And so they were things that they might have done in-house in the past were being subcontracted out, as is, has become increasingly the, the trend. Uh, you found with Sturmey Archer that instead of um, uh, you know, producing alloy components and things like that, they would have those made outside and then just bring them in and finish them in-house. So um, uh, a, a lot of that sort of thing was going on. And across Europe, uh, the quality of components seemed to be going down, whether it was absolutely going down or whether it was just that the Japanese were making better components. But they were unacceptably reliable. Uh, a lot of failure rates and rejections and late deliveries and this sort of thing. And at this time, the Japanese did start coming in and offering products. And whereas when um, Rally and other makers complained about quality to French uh, companies in particular uh, and other continental companies or British companies, if it comes to that, nothing much seemed to happen, presumably because these companies have been around a long time and thought, well, you know, if they don't, but if they're late, they'll just have to wait till we can supply them. The Japanese would say, OK, well, you're not happy with this quality. Let's try it again and see if you're happy then. And the, the Japanese were responsive in terms of quality and delivery. And gradually, we started buying Japanese. And then the idea of complete group sets came in, which had been completely alien. You know, in, originally, if you were buying in components, you'd buy from a particular company because they made very good chain wheels. These people made very good rims and so on. These people made very good uh, derailleur mechanisms. You would mix and match, taking the best from separate manufacturers. And the idea of buying a Grupo in, of everything made by one company, was completely alien. But in particular, the Japanese came along with these graded kits, which made it very easy. And they were, you know, there was a top-end one, a middle one, and so on. They shaded these things down and made it very attractive for the manufacturer to buy in a whole kit of parts. It was easy to deal with, but the pricing was very subtle as well. So it became much less fuss to buy in a group set from Shimano or somebody like that than to pick and choose from a number of European companies and never quite sure whether they're going to turn up and if they work properly when they do. So the profitability was going to the Far East rather than staying in Europe? Yes, only very gradually, though. I mean, some of these things now we take for granted that you'll have certain components and so on. Uh, it, it happened over a number of years, and I think that, that, again, there wasn't a sudden change. It was something that sort of feathered in over time. And can we chart the decline of Rally over this period to the worst moment? Uh, what, what, what was going on here? I mean, it's a complicated story. Can you take us through it at a canter? <laughs> right. Um, you had the, the merger in 1960 made them very, very powerful because they then owned nearly all their traditional rivals and uh, they, they dominated the British industry. They still had lots and lots of interests overseas. But that gradually um, faded away and um, uh, more and more competition cut in and uh, they got to a point where particularly in the 1980s they were losing money year after year after year and TI were propping them up and eventually in, in 1987 um, TI had had enough but basically TI prepared them for a sell-off 
and this is where the uh, the Derby Company, or Derby as it was originally called, came in, uh, put together to uh, buy up the, the rally bicycle interests. This and, is an American company? Uh, kind of, yes. Um, it, it's the, I think they were registered in Luxembourg, actually, but there was American money, and, and there was um, and there was uh, Alan Findon Crofts, who's based in the Channel Islands as well, in, involved in it. So the, the, the original Derby Company took over, and everybody's concern was that then the, the company would just be asset-stripped. The rally would be asset-stripped and, and sold off. But in fact, uh, the people behind Derby were quite enthusiastic about bicycles, uh, some of them very enthusiastic about bicycles, and they managed to turn it around quite quickly. There was a lot of uh, cost-cutting, and there were you know, people had to go and factories had to close. But it became uh, uh, profitable again and remained profitable for quite a long time. It was then uh, sort of sold off to, um, well, I say sold off. There were various transfers of money, but effectively the management went to America. And that was when things really started to fall apart. Instead of being managed from Nottingham, it was being managed from Hartford, Connecticut. And a lot of money went into consultancy and lavish offices and things like that. I think there were essentially the people running it by that stage weren't uh, people who knew about bicycles, whereas the original Derby people were. Uh, the, the chap who was running the the, the organisation at that stage had come from the soft drinks industry, where the margins are very different, and the whole way of making money is, is, is different. Volumes and everything is it is a completely different ballgame. He was a very clever man, but uh, it, it went wrong bicycle-wise. So at this point, where... Are the bikes being made? Well, at that stage, they were basically being made. Most of them were being made in, in Nottingham, and this is where they'd gone over to this very rationalised steel production. Um, but uh, they were having to start buying in bicycles from elsewhere because they couldn't make uh, aluminium bikes themselves. But essentially, from the Nottingham point of view, um, the writing was beginning to be on the wall, and it got to the point where uh, they could buy, rally could buy in the component, well, they could buy in a complete bike made in the Far East for less than they could buy in the components before they even started putting things together. And it was a no-brainer at that stage, at the low end of the market, to, um, to have to buy in complete bikes. So you say that the writing was on the wall, that assembly and production of bicycles in Nottingham was not going to be economically sustainable. What yes. then happened? Essentially, towards the end of the uh, of the last century, uh, the 20th century, it did go into new ownership. Alan Findon Crofts came back. He he sold out his interest, but he was involved with the original Derby purchase, and uh, the company was then revised. Essentially buying in their products from outside. So it's still based in the Nottingham area at um, Eastwood, a few miles outside the city, and designing and specking bikes from there, but nothing was actually made there anymore. It was, the production of frames and so on was, was scaled down and phased out, and so there was no plant anymore uh, in the UK. Uh, everything was sourced from uh, the Far East or wherever was best in some cases from uh, the continent. And was that a sad day? Very sad. I mean, for Nottingham itself, uh, the, it, the rally so dominated the city. So many families were involved. There were very, very few families, I would think, in the whole area who hadn't got some involvement at some stage. And some families that had many, many generations, right back to the early days of rally. So it's a huge, um, a huge hole in the heart, if you like, for... Nottingham to have that go away. And what stands on the site of the factories now? 
Well, you've got various things, but uh, some of the uh, uh, a lot of it is housing. There's uh, sort of, uh, business park type stuff as well, but uh, uh, very much like the edge of, of most towns. Uh, there's student accommodation. There's a place called Silito Court uh, at one end. Um, one of the first plants to go was the Sturmey Archer one. Sturmey Archer was sold off before some of the other uh, land, and that has student accommodation uh, on it now for one of the universities in Nottingham. But Rally still, for all the trials and tribulations and the, the wrong turns, retains a brand cachet around the world, doesn't it? I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's an amazing word, Rally, to have come from Rally Street, yes. but yet it conjures up Sir Walter Raleigh, British quality. Indeed, and the whole thing about sort of empire and heritage in, in, inherent in it and uh, very much played on, particularly after the Second World War. Uh, you had this sort of statue in the, um, in the reception hall of the, the main offices, uh, which was featured in advertising quite a lot. And at trade shows, they'd have an actor sometimes there as Sir Walter Raleigh going around. Uh, tremendous thing. Yes, it's still probably the most recognisable um, uh, brand in, in, in bicycling in the world. If you did a poll of people in the street, uh, you'd probably find more people cited Rally as uh, the number one bicycle company in their mind, regardless of what the actual sales are. And the licensing of the brand is a very, very important thing now. So although um, there isn't this sort of huge manufacturer under one uh, controlling management as there once was there is a management of the brand and the marketing so very many different uh, countries have a rally brand which is carefully orchestrated from uh, rally as, uh, in Nottingham as to what they can do but the actual manufacture and marketing is arranged on a local level and so there are one or two very key people within rally who spend a lot, spend a lot of time traveling the world to China, Taiwan, many other countries to deal with this, this licensing aspect of course, licensing is, is, is a great thing for making money if you can get it under control. And so as a velophile yourself, what do you think are some of the great bicycles that Rally are making today? This is one of the surprises. You might think that uh, when they got to the point of uh, sourcing everything from overseas, that it was just going to be uh, cheap, low-end bicycles that were going to pour in, and, and that was it. But if you actually go to their website and see what they've got, there's a fantastic range of things. You know, you can pay up to about five grand for a, a super-duper carbon uh, road bike uh, sold by Rally. Some of them are their own brand. Some of them are from major brands from uh, the continent, for example. Uh, so you, you've got everything feathering down from that very very top end uh, through all just about any strand of bicycle you could want these days down to a fairly low end. Again, they're, they're still avoiding the absolute bottom end. And this is one of the, the key things with Rally that uh, you've always got this dynamic between where most of the market is uh, in, in a price point and the lowest end and the top end and where you position yourself across that. And are they innovating with new products? I don't think they're really in a position to innovate in the sense of from the ground up. In, in the old days, of course, they were very innovative from the, the basic science, you know, creating things that had never been created before. Um, they don't have the sort of facility to do that, but they, they rather like Frank Bowden in the early days, they have to look out for where they can uh, find something and, and then buy it in or put something together using the technology. So um, they're, they're quite up on things like electric bikes. Uh, if you're into electric bikes, and some of the things they do are quite good. They are generally something which can be seen in somebody else's range that they have bought into rather than created from the ground up. What is Rally bringing to the table if they're just buying other stuff from other people and badging it as Rally 
to get a little bit of that old cachet. Is there anything there? that's worth having as well, a rally? I, th- I think that's where the, the, that's the big question as regards their future. Um, I think at the moment they can still sell on, on the cachet and they put together good deals. You know, whatever you, you get from them is, is, is going to be a reasonable product uh, at the price point you're paying uh, in comparison with anybody else. It's going to, they, they take care to make sure that they are not, they're not shabby at that in, rel- in relation to what their competition would be at that price point. Um, but that, 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 that does beg the question in the long term as to how you manage to keep the image up. But then we can look at old British brands like Brooks and more modern brands like Brompton, who are doing very well, really reaping the benefits of this current bicycle boom. Brompton coming out with an an excellent product that's very foldable and very practical. Brooks are benefiting from the revival of all things retro that, you know, you'd think Rally would be able to jump on that bandwagon because they've got a tremendous back catalogue. Yes, and I think from time to time they will do that. I mean, they do occasionally, well, they they, they will do a loop frame uh, roadster and that that sort of thing. There's a a good market in that kind of uh, uh, thing. Whether they can persuade enough people to to buy it to make it worthwhile. I think there's still the sort of flavour blur thing to some extent, because what people like Brompton and Brooks, um, Sturmy Archer and, and, and people like Mike Burroughs, they do specific things in fairly narrow bands at fairly high price points. And if you can do that, you, you, can, you can still make an operation work in the UK. But what you can't really do with the way that costs are is to get into the mass market in very uh, relatively low prices. And the prices that the average bicycle that a person in the UK buys today is really very, very low in historic terms, uh, you know, relating it to that example I gave before of the, the carter in our village, who it would take a year's pay to pay for a bicycle. Today, they reckon that on average, the average person in the UK has to work for about two days to pay for a bicycle. It's a huge difference. We could look at a company like Trek in America, which has managed to become very large um, with most of its production overseas, yet retaining a certain amount of production in the US at a very high level that is managing to be maybe a future for rally that kind of model yes it would be interesting to see if anybody has the guts and uh, is prepared to invest enough to do that because if they were to bring back something uh, analogous to the the kind of uh, carlton high-end rally operation that was actually made in the uk you might find uh, that they could make enough out of that to be bolstered at lower price levels from uh, imported things i don't know it's just a thought and one of the great ironies is that uh, with molten which of course was bought out by Rally, that was seen as such a small operation. And in 1960, the marketing people in Rally said, oh, nothing's going to, nothing's going to work. No, Molten's not going to work. Nobody's going to want that. We have the irony today that no rallies are made in the UK. And Alex Molten is making bicycles, not large numbers, but he has a, a full order book and he's able to sell pedal cycles at £15,000 to people in the Far East. Now, how, how ironic is that? But that, I think, I, epitomises the situation we have here with things like Brooks and Brompton and so on. If you make something that is good enough, you can sell it at a relatively high price as long as the focus is there. I was talking with Tony Hadland, who is the author of Rally, the past and presence of an iconic bicycle brand. And we'll be returning with an extra helping 
of Rally next week. But for this, I need your help. I want your recollections of a rally bicycle that you may have ridden, you may have owned. Maybe you still do own one. Maybe it was your first bike as a child. Maybe it's a bike that you've restored from a rust heap to something like its former glory. So send me your rally recollections by email, please, to bikeshow at resonancefm.com. That's bikeshow at resonancefm.com. And if you can't do that, then visit the Bike Show website and you'll find the contact form there. That's at www.thebikeshow.net. So I'm really depending on you for next week's show to come up with some great stories about your time with rally bicycles. The good, the bad and the ugly. Yes, I do want those chopper stories too. That's it for The Bike Show this week. Looking forward to concluding our Rally Fest next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye. to Resonance FM for for an oral oh god I can't say this word do your ears need exercising tune in to Resonance 104.4 FM for an oral workout or or on the web on resonancefm.com no it's uh, it's the perfect word for isn't it And what was it for an oral? Uh, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> ow, 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 ow. <laughs>